What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and this is another episode of Totally 80s. If this is the first time you're joining us, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. You can also check us out on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so check that out if you are so inclined. And joining me today is the Ziggy to my stardust. That's not an '80s reference, but it is John Hughes. <laughs> I'm the I'm the uh, oh I'm the screaming to your Lord Byron. Sure, <laughs> sure. We'll definitely we'll definitely get into some some '80s Bowie talk. The the '80s Bowie experience is an odd one because it encompasses so much. It encompasses some of his biggest commercial highs, at least here in America. Some of his biggest critical lows everything in between. Obviously, neither one of us are absolute beginners when it comes to today's topic, which is, in case people haven't figured this out, today's episode is all about the Thin White Duke, or as he was known in the 80s, Screaming Lord Byron. In case you haven't guessed it by now, we are talking about David Bowie, specifically David Bowie in the 80s, and we have the perfect guest to join us. He is an author and a music journalist who is a longtime contributing editor, at Rolling Stone, and he has written several fantastic books, including one about this very subject, David Bowie, entitled On Bowie. So when I thought about who would be a perfect guest for this, this was the first guy I thought of. I'm so happy he is able to join us. Please welcome to Totally 80s, the author of On Bowie, Rob Sheffield. Yay! Hey! hey. Good to I'm, see you. It's so good to see you. I, I have so many things to talk about. Obviously, your book doesn't just encompass 80s Bowie, it's beginning to end. But the as I mentioned just now, the 80s chapters are so interesting because it's so many highs and lows, commercial lows, critical highs, critical lows. And I want to talk a little before we get into 80s Bowie. I understand, first of all, it's been five years since David Bowie died, which is why we thought this was a timely, This it's been five years, as the song says, why we should do this podcast now. It's crazy, man. It's been five years because he's never left any of our collective consciousness. But my understanding is you kind of wrote this book on Bowie in sort of a fever dream. Like he died and you immediately were inspired to write this book, you know, relatively quickly, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the process that made you want to do this book? Yeah, I started, it, it was the night he died. If you remember, like the news was announced at like two in the morning uh, on Eastern Standard Time. Mm -hmm. And uh I just watched a, a crummy award show that I was supposed to be writing about, so I'd stayed up late writing. Uh, it, it was the Golden Globes, which... That's right. It was the same night as the Golden Globes. Yes. About that. Be beautifully, worst night in history to win a cheesy award. You know, <laughs> like, nobody, nobody remembered Sylvester Stallone's Best Actor trophy uh, a few hours after it happened because this news came over, and my friend uh, Karen, who had just been 
over our house watching the Golden Globes, she texted, I was like, did she leave a sweater behind or something? And no, she was like, nope, terrible news. And uh, I just, I stayed up all night writing and I was in the middle of writing a, a book about the Beatles, which eventually came out like a couple of years ago, Dreaming the Beatles. But I was writing about David Bowie. It was two in the morning. Every Everybody I knew who was awake was in touch. Everybody was emailing, texting. I could tell who was awake and who was asleep. I was writing a, an obit for uh, for Rolling Stone, and I was writing till dawn. But I, I I just kept writing and kept writing after that was done. And the thing is, my editor, who's been the editor for all my books, Carrie Thornton, she, uh, she world's biggest Bowie fan, just like puts me even, makes me look like a dilettante, and, uh, although not you. And uh, <laughs> but I, I knew she was not awake yet. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to wake her up. I wanted people to keep sleeping before this terrible news hit them. And uh, and she called at, you know, 8.02 a.m. And she was like, unbelievable. And she was like, you know what? We have to put the Beatle book aside for a few months and we have to do one for Bowie. She's like, we we owe it to him. Let's mm. let, Let's do this. And I was like, well, that makes sense because I've been writing about Bowie for, uh, you know, all night and, and I stayed up all day. And and we ended up like doing the book in uh, just a, a couple of months. Wow, that's crazy. So as I said, the book, of course, encompasses his whole career, but the 80s chapters are fascinating. And I'm going to guess based on reading your other books and, and knowing what your tastes are, Rob, that. The 80s was probably the decade in which you were first introduced to Bowie. And it started off well, didn't end so well. But it's I thought we'd just kind of go through the mixed bag and start, you know, with the kind of, you know, the beginning of the 80s, which I think it was like sort of set the tone for the new romanticism to come. If you remember the Ashes to Ashes video, which I'm sure we remember. So it's the Scary Monsters album. Um, obviously ashes to ashes. I think if I'm not mistaken, like Steve strange from Visage is actually like in that video, along with yeah. all of the Blitz club kids who of yeah. course owes, owed such a debt to Bowie. They all saw top of the pop star man and all decided to start bands 10 years later. So it's 1980 major Tom has been revived on a beach with Steve strange, you know, fashion is the video is happening with Alan Hunter. I remember thinking it was so cool that Alan Hunter, the VJ from MTV was, you know, dancing, doing the, like, uh, you know, the interpretive dance in that video. So mm -hmm. what are our memories of like that album and, and sort of like, you know, David Bowie was so influential on all the MTV artists that came up in 1980 or 1981 and so forth. And here he was kind of already still being a video Vanguard, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it was an entire decade of Bowie's. It was the best time to be a Bowie fan. Um, I was I was a little kid, and I, I was just discovering David Bowie. Lodger was the first one that came out that I remember. Okay, this is the new David Bowie album. And uh, it was so different from the stuff that he'd done before that he was so famous for. And Ashes to Ashes, Fashion, Scary Monsters, these were so different from Lodger. And that was like a really exciting exciting time to be a fan of an artist like that who was like obviously determined not to repeat himself. I remember staying up to watch him on Saturday Night Live uh, when, when he did Boys Don't Boys Keep Swinging and The Man Who Saved the World and TVC 15 and I was like, 
wow, this is an awesome. I've, I'm, I'm 13 years old and I have chosen my hero wisely. <laughs> As Yeah, very wisely. And I'm going to be a part of my life forever. And, and Scary Monsters, it, it was a, yet another move. It, it, was, it was, okay, I'm, I, I had a great run with, with Lodger. I'm not doing the same thing again. And that for me, I, you know, I hate to say it, but that was my introduction to Bowie. I mean, he already kind of seemed in 1980, like a classic rock or elder statesman to me, because I was aware that he'd been around for a while. And I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this, but when I heard the major Tom reference in ashes to ashes, I didn't even know that was referencing an older song, but it was that video in particular. And also the other videos that were kind of running on MTV at the time, like don't, I mean, even though this is like a late seventies, but like look back in anger and heroes and um, a DJ was another one that was played a lot in the early days of MTV that kind of made me look back, but definitely he started off the eighties, the in 1980, very, you know, very promisingly, you know, Let's talk about that because you start with scary monsters and super creeps. It, it's going to be tough to go up from there, you know. So I do understand the the shift to being commercial with Let's Dance, but it's funny you guys have like these different experiences coming on board with Bowie in the '80s than I did. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, so Bowie was a, a figure that loomed large in Cleveland because we broke him in the early. He invented Bowie. Yeah, he made Bowie. Exactly. That was his first U.S. gig, right? Was there? Yes. And and here's the weird thing is I didn't connect all those dots when I you know, when WMMS was playing Bowie. Like I thought for the longest time until I was in my early teens, "Rebel Rebel" was a Tom Petty song because he sounds like Tom Petty to me. <laughs> and this is what's going on in my scrambled, messed up brain as okay. a kid. All right. Uh, Otherwise, I guess maybe a little. Kinda. Uh, you were confusing with I was born a rebel. Maybe. Who knows what was going on? But like you, MTV changed everything. Uh, I, first of all, the funny things, uh, the look back in anger, scary. You know, his face is turning into paint. What's going on? DJ, mm -hmm. oh, he kissed a guy on the street. You guys see that? He kissed a guy. Uh, these were like videos that were subversive and scary to a Midwestern kid in, you know, at 11, 12 years old. So... I ramped up, you know, Let's Dance, I kind of got into, but uh, a Scary Monster Super Creeps is such a great album. How do you follow that the entire decade? I can see why there was a little floundering. But he followed it with, if not necessarily look, you know, looked back upon as his best record, his, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you would know this better than me, John, because you're good with the charts. His, I mean, his most, most commercially successful in America was Let's Dance, right? By far. For sure. So and it's interesting because... Do you think this was a sellout record? I um, just interviewed Mike Garson, who was obviously the longest running off and on band member of Bowie. He was in various Bowie bands. And he said that when he kind of started playing with Bowie again in the 90s on um, Outside, that Bowie had basically sort of had some regrets that he felt that he had sold out in the 80s. I think he was maybe referring a bit more to Never Let Me Down than to Let's Dance. And we'll talk about Never Let Me Down later, uh, which did let us stay. It did not do what the title said. It let us down. But anyway, going back to just the eighties in general, Mike Garson said, told me that, you know, David Bowie had some misgivings about quote unquote selling out in the eighties, which is why he took the turn with the techno stuff that he did, the electronica stuff he did in the nineties. Do you think, what was the memory back then um, when let's dance count, particularly among older fans, the ones who could, who remembered his 
his seventies work, his groundbreaking glam rock work, whatever his, his, uh, his Berlin trilogy, et cetera. Was this record Let's Dance well received or were people like, what the hell is Extremely this well received. There was it no, was? I, it, okay. it was because his later records tonight and never let me down that sort of uh, instilled the sort of narrative that Let's Dance was some kind of falling off. But the, the, the older, the older Bowie fans that I knew, they, they totally loved Let's Dance. The key is like, it was, this was the latest Bowie. Nobody thought that this was the final station. There was going to be another station, two station after this. And he'd already done so much, uh, just so much cavorting about stylistically in the 80s. Um, in between Scary Monsters and Let's Dance, in between those two albums, there, there was a layover of a couple of years. And he had two completely different uh, standalone hits uh, on rock radio. Um, one uh, has gone on to be mega famous, and the other one has fallen into obscurity. Uh, one under pressure with Queen, and the other one, Cat People, putting out fire, which the superior original version by Giorgio Moroder. Yes, yes, the <laughs> version. Like I think, if you could go back in time to 1982, the agile, the average Bowie fan would be shocked that in the future everybody on Earth would know "Under Pressure" by heart and would hear it every day, and Cat People would completely disappear. That, that's, yeah, and, and nice would, remember, "Under Pressure" was not a huge hit. Yeah, MTV. I actually remember when that video was on MTV, I didn't like it because it was all like, was it not Metropolis, but it was like that. Yeah, it was all like old, like silent movie stuff. And like Bowie and and Queen were not in it. And I was not a fan of any music video back then that the star, like, I mean, back then I didn't even like Chauffeur by Duran Duran because Duran Duran weren't in it. Like I wanted my artist to be in the video. Well, I said back then, let me say I've changed my mind since. Your but dad did as we learned on an earlier podcast. My dad was a fan of both the girls on film and chauffeur videos that um, I made. But anyway, I digress. Let's stay on Bowie. Although we probably will talk about Duran Duran later because we do eventually have to talk about all the 80s artists that took such a nod from Bowie. But going back to the Let's Dance era, or sorry, going back to the Under Pressure era. Yeah, that song became not just one of Bowie's biggest songs, but Queen's biggest songs as well. But it's interesting because, um, and I think you might've written this in your book, Rob, it doesn't really actually sound like the discography or the, you know, it doesn't really sound indicative of the signature sound of either artist. Like it's kind of a one-off. I mean, the hook is a flute, you know, like not a lot of flutes (laughs) on Queen records, definitely not a lot of flutes on Bowie records. I think this is the only one. And, uh, you know, I've I've come to love under pressure. I mean, it's 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 a great song. It's a one-off for both artists. It, it's totally a, a standalone. It's really different from anything else they did. It's it's an oddity for for both artists, which is why it's so weird that it's arguably the most famous song either of them ever did. But why do you think Cat People did not reach the same level of uh, success? And you're right. I don't think it's some a song that people tend to think of when they think of Bowie's output, or even when they think of Giorgio Moroder's output, you know, he, it's not one of the songs people think about. Or Natasha Kinsky's outfit. Output <laughs> in, in the 80s, uh, it, it, definitely like a, you know, a theme from, from one of her finest movies where she's transforming into a panther periodically in the middle of the night. Um, uh, it, but it, with Cat People, it, it begins as this torch song that it becomes this like really like a, amazing goth epic. It, it's weird. Like it, that song to me, that's that's a that's a top ten Bowie song for me. And 
definitely like in terms of 80s Bowie. I, I think it's because he did the remake of it that John that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, so now Rogers watered down kind of version. Yeah, and, and I that, think it killed the song off for people. And and uh but it's 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 a deep cut that always sounds fantastic when when you hear it again. I always loved how Quentin Tarantino used it in Inglorious Bastards, completely like anachronistically, it's it's World War II. And you know, and just but that song is so perfect. Uh, I, I think it's just a phenomenal song. Do you have any idea why the, uh, just real quick, do either of you know um, why the remake or the watered down version, as you say, is the version that ended up on the Less Dance album instead of the superior version? I think it was a, a, a dearth of material. I don't think he had enough stuff written for Let's Dance. And you read interviews with uh, Nile Rogers to go back to your earlier question. Was it a sellout? Absolutely. Bowie has said many times that he was broke. Uh, his management had ripped him off. According to him, he needed a hit. Uh, he had signed this new mega deal with EMI and he wanted to come out swinging. And he went to Nile and said, you know, here's this folky song called Let's Dance. And I was like, why are you writing this folk song? It's got to be a, a if you're on Let's, Let's Dance, it's got to be a banger. And, you know, Bowie, in really uncharacteristic fashion, said, okay, do what you want. <laughs> Hands off. What? David Bowie giving up control? Well, this is another thing that I'm curious about that I wonder if either of you know. So the Let's Dance album, as you're saying, John, was definitely a career reboot for David Bowie. It was his most, you know, he was in a, a slump, not necessarily creatively, but financially. And it completely changed all that, turned it around for him. It was also something that was a real career reboot for Nile Rogers, who had been sort of suffering from the stupid disc disco backlash as being associated with that world. And it so like... Am I mistaken that this is the only time, this is the only album at least that the two ever worked on together? Like why did this not become black tie, white noise? They, did they? Yeah. But that was a little more fraught with creative tension because Bowie was not willing to concede as much control that okay. time around. That's why you have strange things like jump. They say, which is, you know, a yeah. weird angle, but let's dance. If you guys think about it for a second, it's really three singles and filler. And I'm saying that as the biggest Bowie fan, you've got um, you've got Let's Dance, China Girl, Modern Love, maybe Without You. Then you've got Shake It. I was about to say Shake It as a Bob. And then you've got okay. a remake of Cat People. And it's not his song, but I love it. Uh, and the remake of Metro uh, Criminal World, which is amazing. Great but, song, yes. But it's not a Bowie-written song. He has a history of doing covers on every album. Sure. So that's the cover for this one. But think about that album. It's really, is it eight songs? And it's real short. And there's not, it, he had a, a little bit of a block, I think. Also, the bangers are on side one. He definitely knew which songs were the, were the bangers and which ones were the filler. It's, it's a real, like, old school side one and side two are really two different records. Mm -hmm absolutely sequenced i mean you come out the gate with modern love that you know what you're in for but i i do bring up opening tracks yeah. like nobody nobody knew how to in terms of pacing it, i'm especially beginning it with like a, a really like evocative manifesto you know that's something where he never failed and and modern love really sets 
Let's Dance Up to be maybe a little better than it is, but God, what a great song. So even if the album was uneven and, you know, front loaded, we all know that it, as we've established, it was a career high commercially and, you know, introduced David Bowie to a whole new audience of fans. So although, John, you corrected me that it wasn't the only time that David Bowie worked with Nile Rodgers, they didn't work together regularly after this and not together for a long time. Do you have, do you know why this wasn't like, oh, this worked, let's do another album together. Let's have Nile work on tonight or on never let me down. Why did that not happen? I don't know for sure. There's a recess in my memory. Rob, tell me if I'm misremembering this, that I think Bowie actually kind of resented the success a little bit because a lot of it was credited to the production and Nile Rogers. And, you know, uh, I do remember reading something like that, but who knows what's the truth, the truth and lies and somewhere in between who knows. He, he, uh, I think he wanted to establish a little independence from Nile Rodgers. Honestly, not having Nile Rodgers produce his next album is arguably the worst decision in, in a career full of like, well, that was an odd decision or that was a questionable decision. This is one that's just a flat out dumb decision. This is one where Bowie just made the absolutely, you know, bonehead move. And if, it was really, if, it was sad to see if, if I'm sure you all remember hearing tonight for the first time and, and reading the back cover and going like, what, why, why, why? I am not hearing like tonight. <laughs> he broke up with Nile Rogers to record with some other snazzy producer. He just Who got produced tonight. Do you know? Hugh Padgham, right? Yeah. Well, Hugh, Hugh Padgham's yeah. no slouch. He's a big name, but you know, time he was—he was like, it, well, Hugh Padgham, very top forty producer, producing very decidedly non-top forty, with the exception of Blue Jean material. You've got "Loving the Alien," one of my favorite Bowie songs. Of That's, all a time. That's a good song. What wow. a great way to start. Of course, you know, production-wise, it's a little. M.O.R. a little bit. Uh, you know, you could say that, yeah. Yeah, it could be a little edgier, but the song itself, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the reality tour, the video for the reality tour. I went he, to it. He does a, a version of Loving the Alien, just him and uh, like guitar. And it's amazing. And you're like, oh, there's that song that's hidden there under all that 1984 production sludge. Well, let's talk a bit more about tonight because um, I, I think I see where Rob is going with this. Do you think he with this album? and albums that followed in the eighties, which we've already established the eighties for David Bowie was a mixed bag. Did he squander, you know, the goodwill or the opportunity he had with what some people would maybe if some people might've called let's dance a comeback, or if not a comeback, then like a new, a new opportunity to, you know, have a new audience, be a top 40 star the way he had been with let's dance. Did he blow it? I guess is what I'm trying to say with tonight. Funny. You say blow. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that might have been involved in the decision making process. It's bizarre that he uh, that that he squandered all the new young fans that he'd worked so hard to do. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not just with uh, with the album Let's Dance, but with the amazing serious Moonlight tour, which was so rapturously received. Yes, um, and and which also it showcased material from all over his career to the fans who were just coming in because of the new hit album. So. He had done a lot of work to build up a new audience. And then just a year later, he rushed out this completely unnecessary, nobody asked for an album a year later, um, just really like flat out terrible record that Aww. that really like, you know, 
actively like turned off a lot of the the newfound fans that he'd inspired. And in terms of like some of the worst timing of his career, it came out right around the same time as uh, this guy from Minneapolis. His name was um, Prince. Prince. Oh yeah. Uh, he put out this album called Purple Rain, which was kind of a hit at the time. And <laughs> it was, in fact, a much better Bowie record than, than Bowie's Bowie record was. Mm. And do you uh, feel that he was, sorry to interrupt, do you feel that David Bowie was trying to compete with the younger MTV people, the Princes, the Durans? You know, did, he, did you get that sense? I don't think he was. I think EMI was. Mm. Uh, because think about you guys take yourselves back to when tonight came out blue jean first single it, it was doing well blue jean was a hit top 10 you know yeah mtv sneak preview video every hour on the hour either that or the 20 minute version depending on what hour you watched it um it was great second single tonight the, the title track with tina turner whoa wow why are we picking this because <laughs> i had tina turner on it i assume she was doing yeah. quite well at the time it's just such a, a non-energy track and he's he's completely distracted. So I'm sure this, you know, Rob, you say who asked for this record a year later? EMI. <laughs> I'm curious, Rob, when you, because you mentioned the Prince thing and how Prince was having an amazing, you know, career year, career high that year. Do Was there sort of at that time a like in the fandoms or in the media, whatever, like a rivalry? Like, was there this idea that like Prince was the new Bowie, that Prince was unseating Bowie? Was there anything like that? Well, those were big, th th those were big back to school records. Like <laughs> they were, you know, like late summer, early fall. And if you in your dorm room had a tape of Tonight and a tape of Purple Rain, one tape was going to get played twice. The other one was going to play get played two dozen times a day. Um, there was Purple Rain was just this like fantastic record. And and because there were so many huge artists in 1984, it was such a peak year for, for pop music, for rock, for all different types of music that had totally taken inspiration from David Bowie. I mean, mm -hmm. Van Halen's David Bowie record was better than David Bowie's record. It was like the only person on the radio who couldn't make a good David Bowie record was David Bowie. So, you know, oh, man. we were all playing Cindy Lauper's record, which was almost a year old at that point, but it just kept giving up hit after hit. Cindy Lauper would have been the first one to say that she was just inspired by David Bowie. Madonna, huge hit that year. She would have been the first to say she was inspired by Bowie. And Bowie was the one who sounded like he had completely fallen off. Really? Well, weird choices. Like, okay, yeah. I, I made some money last time. But my buddy uh, James over here needs some cash, Iggy. So we'll cover three of his songs on this record. Well, it worked when he did China Girl. Obviously, that was a song that yeah. he had a co-writing credit on, but had originally been done by Iggy. So maybe right. he thought that was a lightning that could strike twice again. I will def defend Neighborhood Threat. That is a jam. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about Dancing for Blue Jean for a minute because you mentioned, John, the, the, the long version of the video. And it felt so long. <laughs> bloated uh, yeah you know so, when i'm talking about the 20 minute version with the screaming the if i remember the plot of it david bowie is playing like a nerdy awkward guy which is completely unconvincing because if there was one thing that david bowie wasn't even at his career nader he was never like an awkward guy that no girl would ever want to go on a date with like that that's not that was bad casting but he's playing this dual role of this like nerdy guy who's trying to impress a girl by taking her to see a Lord B Screaming Lord Byron concert and like 
claiming that they're friends and oh i'll introduce you is am i remembering it right because that's i've been trying exact, that's the exact okay. plot. it could have been and was julian temple the director of that yeah. Julian Temple, and we have to thank him for not only that video but the loving the alien video bringing us the two guys from right said fred who are in both really? playing that's mime, true miming the bass and uh the other guys playing i believe guitar that is a fun fact. I, I was going to thank Julian Temple for Man Trap by ABC, another band that the obviously greatest owes movie of all time. Thank you, thank you. I of course <laughs> interviewed Rules long before the Vanderpump Rules. We'll take this conversation. I'll send you the link I did where I interviewed Martin Fry entirely just about Man Trap. He was very confused about why I wanted to talk to him about this, but God, obviously ABC. ABC, another band that owes such a debt to Bowie. I will say though, the Dancing for Blue Jean video. I looked this up. It won a Grammy that year for best long short form video. Should have won for best long form video because it was friggin' twenty minutes long. But yeah, when they, when I, they put it out on video, because said it was a video EP. I'm like, no, this is a video LP. I remember when this video came out. As you said, they were like premiering it on the hour. It was, you know, back then when MTV was going to premiere video, it was a very big deal. You like stopped what you were doing. You know, you, you know, I'm beginning to sound like some old person going we walked to school in the snow but we waited by the vcr with the tape we were ready just in case you know it never got shown again in the case of this video it definitely got shown again it didn't need to be shown again but i remember i remember sort of being in denial because i didn't want to admit that i was disappointed or, or just bored by it obviously once they trimmed the fat it was a little better but i did like the look in it and i will say that very shortly after david bowie died it was still january 2016 Moonlight Rollerway, which is a roller rink out here in Los Angeles, did a Bowie skate night with a bunch of people dressed like Bowie, nearly killing themselves trying to skate in costume. But it was a lot of fun. And they had a costume contest. And everybody kind of did the like obvious thing and dressed in Ziggy Stardust wear. It's like the easiest one to do, like paint a you know, Aladdin Sane lightning bolt on your face or whatever. Couple people went for the Harlequin look of scary monsters. But when the guy who came dressed as Screaming Lord Byron in blue face, I was like, he needs to win. And he didn't win. And I think it's maybe because a lot of people like who were judging the contest didn't even get like which persona this was because it yeah. was like, it's but he really had it down. I don't remember liking the videos, I'm trying to say, but I do remember liking the song. And so I don't, you know, you're talking about how this album was terrible, but it did have some redeeming qualities i think it's when we get to never let me down which i've already made the bad joke about was was you know the never needed to be taken out of the title it was just let me down yeah uh, before we leave tonight though the, another thing about the the bad decisions or bad scheduling or whatever they were thinking with this record there was no video for the second single it was, was there just, no there was it, it just went from Blue Jean, then that second single tonight flops, and then they have a nice, beautiful video for Loving the Alien, which, you know, not the most top 40 friendly tune, but what are you going to do? Do you think that they blew their budget on the 20 minute Blue Jean video and they were like, shit, no more time. We can't do a second video. I think Tina Turner is so hot in 1984. Her schedule is probably like, look, and we can't get her to do, you know, set no time to do a video. David's over in the corner, you know, eating celery and carrots and milk and whatever else. Uh, you know, his, his 70s diet again. So who knows? <laughs> also, they I, collaborated on a soda pop commercial. That's right. Where they, they changed uh, the lyrics where actually Bowie sang Modern Love with new lyrics. He revised the lyrics so that they're about a brand of soda pop. 
Was, what was uh, it like? I don't want to drink Coke. I want to drink Pepsi. Now I know up. the choice is mine. Oh choice no! Yes. Um, oh no! It was. Uh, yes, it was. It was one unfortunate. Important. You know, like when they first invented YouTube, and you're like, "Wow, I'm going to look up all these things that I thought were just a bad dream that I had one night in 1985." Like, I was like, "Nope, it's real, and it's." Every bit is, you know, I saw that commercial once on MTV at like two in the morning. Traumatized for life. You had the uh, Battle of the Soda commercials. You had that one. And then you had Alan Jorgensen's uh, Shasta commercial with Alan Jorgensen. You've never heard this? I want to. I want a Shasta, and it's Alan Jorgensen doing the vocals and the instrumentation. I'll have to send. Is this it. pre with sympathy or like with sympathy era of industry? Right after with sympathy when he was looking for Cab, and he's confirmed it's him. Oh and my it's, god! It's amazing. Uh, I have to hear this. Oh my gosh! Oh my god! Sometimes the internet is is a great thing. When so you see it, you'll remember it because MTV played it every commercial break. You, you'll come right back to you, flooding back, and you, you'll freak out. Well, before we move on to Never Let Me Down, um, since we're talking about unfortunate or amusing duets, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Dancing in the Street. South America! <laughs> like, I know, I'm sure. <laughs> Greatest video of all time. It's Hello? better without the sound. Speaking of YouTube, like the soundless. Oh, my uh, God. The soundless dance in the street, the where they just like put sound effects or you know musicless dance in the street, but like there was cocaine involved in this. I'm gonna assume. <laughs> you think? You, you you find it hard to believe that even in the '80s they made that much cocaine. Oh. <laughs> like I love how they're constantly copying each other's moves, and like Bowie's doing the jazz fingers, you know, like and so much jazz hands. They they are so 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 like. I mean, they're having such a great time. I love that video. I'll defend that video to my dying day. The genius of David Bowie is at the end with the infamous dual butt shake. Bowie takes the moment to take his tr white trench coat and flip it over so his butt is exposed properly to the camera. Mm -hmm. You can see the full shake. Well, I appreciate that. Seriously. I appreciate an exposed 80s video Bowie backside. I mean, I liked the unedited China Girl video, you know, the MTV band. That was a good look. I didn't mind that. that so drag race reveal before there was a drag race reveal. <laughs> I will say, though, when we're talking, I was just talking about how it was so unconvincing in the Blue Jean video that David Bowie was supposed to be this kind of like uncool person because even at his career lows, he was always the coolest of the cool. The one time that I remember thinking, David Bowie's, this isn't cool, was the Dance in the Street video. I had two of the arguably coolest rock stars that have ever lived in any decade, Mick Jagger, David Bowie. You know, when you think about the two of them sharing a song, sharing a screen together, that's, you know, rock history right there. Both just seeming like drunk uncles at a bar mitzvah. Like just it was like the dancing wasn't cool. The they're just I mean, now I watch it with fascination, but I do remember thinking like this is kind of goofy for them. Like, I don't know. Does anyone know like how? this came about that they made like was this video choreographed is what i want to know because it seems like they just someone just stuck a camera on them and was like all right guys you got one go 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 for it just inhale this cocaine and do it rob i think that's how it happened <laughs> I, I think so yeah i mean of course it was it was time for live aid yeah um, mm. 
the the video the video has that great all nighter feel that you know like we see them like and we see even the sunrise you know like at the end they're dancing doing their little moves and and you, you could definitely tell like wow like this incredibly decadent night has passed like you feel you feel like you're doing the walk of shame after three minutes of walk. Watching this video, you're like, I'm crawling home in the cold light of dawn. It's a real Sunday morning coming down ending to that video. The I real just, the whole thing has an improv look like, okay, I'm going to stick my hand out here through the door, and then you do it too on the other side. Right. And, and the whole thing of like, I'm going to, like, while you're singing, I'm just going to bend over and grab my beer from the floor and like, while my beer, put it back down on the floor. <laughs> while, the, while the camera spins around, that's the best part. Yeah, uh, I that video. Sorry, yeah, but he did make up for for live with Live Aid though. His Live Aid performance is amazing. It, it completely beautiful. And yes, and speaking of you know like Thomas Dolby career high points. There you go. Um, and Thomas Dolby has often said that you know like he you know David Bowie didn't tell them the set list, so like uh, they, they go out and and he starts calling for, for songs, and like Thomas Dolby's like, okay, TVC one five, I know that one. Yep. Um, wow. Wow. Completely like David Bowie was just like absolutely fantastic at Live Aid and a great hair, his hair done by Freddie Mercury's boyfriend. Yes. <laughs> but he did TVC 15 at Live Aid. Let's take a second. That. Yes. That. I yes, mean, exactly. Heroes, sure. Check. Let's dance. Um, modern love. Uh, TVC 15. Amazing. Why was yeah. he not on um do they know it's Christmas? He was one of the missing people from Band-Aid because I believe he might be on the other side. Is he on the side? He's on the He's other on the side with the messages. Like this Here's is the world. Going. There's more starving folk on the planet than ever before. Uh, it, it his self-parodic self-parodic it it's the folk like that that you know I love that entire B-side with the spoken messages. That's like where they, the catch-all where like, oh, Frankie goes to Hollywood, couldn't make it, but we'll have them talk on the side here or whatever. But I do remember, I for some reason, when I hear that song, Do They Know It's Christmas in my head, I hear the David Bowie version where he's like, banish shade, like, you know, in that like very dramatic voice. He, he got, when they all sing together at the end, I believe he was at Wembley, right? He was at the British version, right? So... As we said, we're, you know, the 80s didn't end so well for him. But since we, you know, we're sort I'm trying to keep this a little chronological and he did have some one-offs, as you mentioned, Rob, and we already discussed Under Pressure and we discussed Cat People, but we haven't discussed, actually, I really like uh, a couple that were from films, Absolute Beginners, the song, and This Is Not America. I discovered who Pat Metheny was because of the Falcon, the Snowman song, This Is Not America. That's a great song. How can This Is Not America be a hit in America, but Absolute Beginners is not? <laughs> That's what it confuses me. I don't know, not to put them, not to pit them against each other, but Absolute Beginners is Hook Central. What's going on? Was that not a hit here? Yeah, 60s. Okay. Totally oh, you know the charts. Dragged, dragged down by the movie, really. It's funny. Yeah. My, my sister uh, loved that song at the time, and she was like, this is David Bowie's best song ever. And I was like, no, 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 it's terrible. And then um, when I went to see uh, Lazarus in the theater, his, you know, the, the small theatrical production that he was doing at the time that he died. And there's this incredibly beautiful scene where, where they do absolute beginners. And oh, I wow. immediately after leaving the theater, I texted my sister. I was like, by the way, 
this argument that we've been having about absolute beginners for the past 30 years, you won this one. <laughs> it is, it is every bit as great as you say. Completely beautiful song. Buried a bit under the 80s production, but yeah. just like a beautiful song that, you know, we really missed the boat not making that one a hit. And six and a half minutes long. Let's not forget that. It could, it could use a trim. How high did This Is Not America chart, John? You know these like things. 20s, like mid 20s, 27. Oh, yeah. That's a respectable it hit. Yeah, you know, one of those turntable hits, as they say. Turntable hits. Well, we. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> well, since we're talking about films, how much time you got to talk about Labyrinth and the Hunger? Oh. How much time you got, guys? Because that could be a podcast in its own. Forever I mean, ever and ever. <laughs> so obviously, there's so much to talk about when it comes to David Bowie in the 1980s that we, unsurprisingly, are going to have to make this a two-parter. Rob, can we convince you to come back to talk more Bowie next time? Let's dance. <laughs> All right. So I'm Lindsay Parker. I've been joined today by John Hughes and Rob Sheffield, and we will be back next time to talk more David Bowie. Until then, remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.